If you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 18, if you see I've got three chapters written down there and you're a little worried, I'm not going to read all of them. Uh, you can have that as an assignment this week to read those three chapters if you want to. But do that this afternoon. You probably have time to do that before the Super Bowl starts. The Super Bowl doesn't start until 530. Chapter 20 especially is quite long, and we'll look at it a little more thoroughly next week. 1 Samuel chapters 18 to 20, uh, the title that I put in the bulletin there is When It All Goes Sideways, When It All Goes Sideways. So if you remember where we were at last week is 1 Samuel 17, and David is on this mountaintop experience. And I wonder if you've ever been there where you just feel like everything in life is going your way. Everything is exactly the way you want it to be, or at least it's close enough that you're feeling pretty good. And then all of a sudden, it feels like the rug gets yanked out from under you. Like, like it's the, the example in Scripture that I thought of is over in 1 Kings, actually. We're pretty familiar, many of us, I'm sure, with uh, 1 Kings 18, where Elijah is facing off against the prophets of Baal. And in 1 Kings 18... Elijah has gone up on this mountain, and there's these 400 prophets, and they're dancing around. They, they basically have a face-off. Like, okay, we're going to see whose God is real. And, and so these guys, they get their sacrifice, and they build it up on this altar, and the, the contest is whoever's God answers with fire to our prayers, that's the God who's real. And they, they build it up, they've got their kindling under their sacrifice, and they're dancing around it, and they're praying, and they're cutting themselves ceremonially. They're doing all this stuff, and Elijah stands there and he mocks them. Oh, maybe he's away on a journey. Oh, uh, maybe he's asleep. Better get louder, guys. Maybe he's got to take a bathroom break. Like, what, maybe, I don't know what he's doing, but he's obviously not listening. And Baal never answers with fire. But then Elijah comes out, and they build an altar, and they dig a trench around it, and they fill it with water, and they cover the sacrifice with water, and Elijah prays, boom, fire comes down, consumes the sacrifice, and then all the prophets of the false gods get slaughtered by the people. And, and so Elijah is like on top of the world. And the next chapter, verse 4, 19 verse 4, Jezebel in verse 2 has said, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And you would think Elijah's response here would be like, did you not just hear what happened? But instead, verse 4, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die. It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. You know, you got Elijah goes from this literal mountaintop experience to running for his life and hiding from this woman and asking God, please kill me now. Please just kill me now. And, and almost, it's a little slower than that, but almost as devastating is this turn of events for David in 1 Samuel 18. So in chapter 17, if you remember from last week, David has gone out taking a care package basically to his brothers and their commanders, and they... He gets out there and he sees this Philistine coming out and challenging the armies of Israel, defying, that word comes up six times in the passage, that, that Goliath is defying the armies of God and therefore he is defying God himself. And David is not impressed by this. He has great confidence in God's ability. And 
And first he goes and he, he's asking around, like, why are we letting this happen? He gets brought to Saul. He tells Saul, don't worry, guys, everybody, just chill out. I'll go kill him. And Saul laughs at him and then tries to give him his armor, and then that's not going to work. So David just goes out with his, his slingshot to fight the giant. And the giant laughs at him and curses him. He says, this is stupid. I'm going to feed you to the birds. And David says, oh, no, I've got God on my side. I'm going to feed you to the birds, and I'm going to chop off your head. And that's what he does. That's exactly what happens. The giant is slain. Praise God. Amen. Yeah, praise God. God, God enables David to conquer this giant, and then the armies of the Philistines flee, and ultimately David gets brought before Saul, verse 57 of chapter 17. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. So David is brought before David, carrying Goliath's head. Like, this is about as triumphant as you can get. And it seems to continue that way into chapter 18. So the first six verses read this way. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him from that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul sent him, set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So David and Jonathan are, are knit together in soul. David goes from just being somebody who served in Saul's court intermittently, coming and playing some music and then going back home. Now Saul keeps him in the house. We see that in verse 2. And, and as he's brought in, the soul, the soul of, of Saul's son, Jonathan, is knit to David. He loved him as his own soul. We see this is actually a habit of, of Saul to knit, not not knit, but to... <laughs> maybe that would have helped his, his anxiety problems too if he would have taken up knitting. But in chapter 14, verse 52, this habit of attaching to himself any valiant man. 1452, there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. And so... Obviously, David fits that category, and Saul says, I'm keeping you with me. You're not going home anymore. You're just going to stay here in the court where I have you when I need you. Verse 3, Jonathan made a covenant with David. Literally, it says he cut a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Now, we don't know if, if they did this way in this case, but you, when you think of cutting a covenant, you think like, what Abraham did with God, where there's these animals that are cut and they're split in two, and you walk between them. And, and the symbolism there is that if either one of you were to violate the terms of the covenant, you would be split open. Your blood would be shed like these animals. And so this is a serious commitment that Jonathan and David make to each other. And here in verse 4, it's, it shows what the commitment is. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him. His princely robe. Remember, Jonathan is next in line to the throne. He's, he's Saul's son. He's the one who will be king when, when Saul is off the scene. 
And Jonathan, symbolically here, he takes off his robe and he gives it to David. Now remember, David's anointing had been in private, right? It, other people don't know about this. Just whoever, like the family and Samuel, whoever was there back in chapter 16 that, that saw, saw that. But Jonathan recognizes something here, that this is the man that God wants to be king. And he gives his royal robe to him, his sword and his bow and his belt. Remember, this is one of two swords in all Israel. And Jonathan gives it to David. And then David goes out and he's successful wherever Saul sent him. And this, this delights all the people. It even delights Saul's court, the people around him. And again, it seems to continue, verse 6, as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. So the women come out, they're fawning over David. Remember, this is a young man who's handsome, ruddy in appearance, and he's a great warrior too. I mean, this is the kind of guy that the girls dig. And, and they're coming out and they're singing. And notice that they continue to praise Saul. It's not like, oh, Saul's all washed up. Let's go to this David guy. They're still saying, Saul has slain his thousands, but David is ten thousands. And Saul cannot stomach this. Verse 8, Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Now this isn't, it, it's, considering who David is, it's irrational. But if you're Saul, you're the first king of Israel. You have no history of kings in the nation, and so the people wanted a king so they could be like all the other nations. Now, what happens in other nations if you've got a king and somebody underneath of the king starts to grow in power and popularity? Either he's going to knock the king off, or the king better take care of him before that can happen. Like, this is rational human behavior where Saul goes, uh, I, I got to deal with the, the power dynamics here are not good for me. But it's not taking into account, obviously, as we're going to see through the rest of this book, who David is. David never, even though he is anointed king, David never grasps for the throne. David never grasps for that authority. He never does anything subversive to, to try to undercut Saul. He is a loyal subject to the Lord's anointed his entire life. So, so Saul doesn't have any real personal reason to do this. He's just thinking through things in a worst case, I've got to defend myself, frame of mind. In verse 10, the next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. And Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. So remember this harmful spirit from the Lord. That's initially why David had been brought in to start with into Saul's court, was to play music to help calm Saul down when he got this way. And, and David's sitting here playing, and Saul's raving about the house, and he sees, I've got my spear. I'm going to kill that guy. I'm going to solve this problem. I'm going to stick him to the wall, and I won't have to worry about his stupid 10,000s anymore. But... But David's able to duck, 
And it's an interesting thing here. Again, David doesn't flee, flee. Like, he gets out of the way. He gets out of the house. But he doesn't seem to assume at this point that Saul's out to kill me. This, like, Saul's this way. He gets in these moods. He does crazy stuff. He'll calm down. It's going to be okay. And Saul sends him out and sets him out in charge of his army. And, and he continues to have great success. Verse 14, David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. But Saul doesn't see that and rejoice. Instead, verse 15, when Saul saw, Saul saw, so many S's, that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. The, the people love David, but Saul is terrified of this guy. And we see Saul's hatred and fear grow. And at first, like I said, it's still, even though he's thrown a spear at David, it doesn't seem to be any indication that, that David or anyone else thinks that there's actual malice and hatred in Saul's heart. They just must assume that this is the ravings of a madman. But now we start to see Saul get sneaky. And so I'm just going to overview what happens in the rest of chapters 18 and 19. In chapters 18, verses 17 to 29, we see Saul finally offering his daughter in marriage to David. Remember, that had been his promise in chapter 17, was that the man who killed the Philistine would get one of his daughters as a wife. And so he offers his oldest daughter, Merib, to him. But, but look at his thought process here. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me. Fight the Lord's battles. Let not my hand be against him, Saul thought. But let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So he's saying, if you go out and be my commander, you can have my daughter as a wife. And his thought process isn't, oh, I need to fulfill my promise. His thought process is, oh, if I set him out there, I'm going to get him killed. And remember, this is actually a thought process that David is going to put into play later with another woman. Sometimes we don't learn the lessons from our own lives. But, but the problem with Saul's plan is that it actually doesn't work. David just continues to be successful. But he's also not tripped up by this offer of Merib. Uh, Verse 18, David said to Saul, Who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? And so when it comes time to give the daughter to David, instead it says she was given to another man, Adriel the Maholothite. But then she's got a younger sister. So we we can go round two with this. Saul's going to try to get him again. And this daughter loves David. She, she's totally with every other girl in Israel who's fawning over him and saying, oh, how strong, oh, how handsome. And she is, she's the girl that Saul thinks, okay, this, this one will trip him up. Let me give her to him, verse 21, that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. And then David again just says, hey, guys, it, when, when the servants of Saul go out to him and say, hey, he wants you to be his son-in-law. Do you, do you think it's a light thing? I'm a poor man. I'm a man of no name. Who am I to be the king's son-in-law? And so Saul sends another message to him and says, well, I don't need a bride price. I just need 100 foreskins of the Philistines. And, and so what you see here is Saul is going, okay, if I put him in charge of the army, the army wins. But if I'm going to put him in a situation where he has to go slaughter 
a hundred men, one of them have got to get him, right? <laughs> like a hundred versus one, one of them have got to get him. And this might seem a little bit of a grisly way to prove your love uh, to us. It's actually, I mean, to our modern sensibilities, it's horrendous, right? Uh, but it's very common in history to have some sort of mutilated body part from an enemy as a way to, to show off your prowess in battle. So, I mean, we, if you grew up watching Westerns, you think of the Al West, the Western Indians with the scalping the settlers or the cavalry soldiers. In the East, actually, it was white settlers who scalped Indians <coughs> as a, a way of showing how many they had killed. And in the ancient world, very often, like the Egyptians would keep a severed finger or an ear. Like, this is, it's grisly, but this is the way the world has been since sin entered the world, is there's a lot of grisly things. And this is one of them. Uh, probably the reason that he picked a foreskin is to prove that A, he killed men, and B, they were Philistines, not Israelites. You know, that there's, it's, it's a practical way for Saul to, to send David on a suicide mission. The problem for Saul's plan, again, though, is that God is with David. And if you look down in verse 27, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. Oh, 100 Philistines? Saul, that's all you want? I'll give you two. And, and just nothing Saul seems to do works. He brings them to him, the full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. But when saw, Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, <coughs> Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. And then in chapter 19, Saul is just sick of trying to scheme and plan. And he's just like, okay. He, he speaks to his son Jonathan and to all his servants, and he says, guys, I want you to kill David. Like, no more, no more back room. Try to plan this out. Just go kill him. Get it over with. And, and of course, Jonathan doesn't want to do this, right? And so he takes his dad out in the field. He's like, hey, this does not make any sense. He is killed the Philistine. He has served you. You have rejoiced in how much good he has done for you and for the kingdom. Why would you do this? And Saul says, okay, you're right. You know, that, that makes a lot of sense. And so David gets brought back in to, to the royal house. But then, verse 9, a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. And as he sat in his house with a spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre, it's like, same story, second verse. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. But when he flees and escapes, he just goes home. And Michael says, are you crazy? My dad wants to kill you. And you've got to get out of here or he's going to, he is going to kill you in the morning. And Saul, has, he's, he's got men sent to David's house so that when he comes out in the morning, he's captured and killed. And so Michael lets him out through the window and makes this little ruse so that when the guys come in, you know, oh, he's, he's just laying in bed sick. And they go back to Saul, and Saul says, well, bring him in on his bed so I can kill him. And they go to pick up his bed, and it's an idol. It's, it's not Why David has an idol is an interesting question I don't have an answer to. That's uh, an interesting note there. But um, anyway, now David is, or Saul is not only mad with David, he's not only mad with Jonathan for loving David, he's mad at his daughter too, because 
Why, why have you chosen Jesse's son? Verse 17, Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me and thus let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And she tells a lie to save her own skin here. I'm not going to ever commend lying, but it's understandable under the circumstances why she would be seeking to save her own skin because her dad is crazy. And then in the end of chapter 19, you get one of the weirdest stories. One of the weirdest stories. I just, no matter how many times I read this or listened to it this week, I was like, man, this is weird. Where David runs to Samuel to protect him and tell him what's going on. And then Saul hears where he goes and he sends servants to go get David. And those servants, the spirit of the Lord rushes upon them and they like fall down, start prophesying, acting ecstatic like we saw earlier in 1 Samuel with with some of the other prophets who aren't named. And Saul gets frustrated by this, sends some more servants. Same thing happens to them. The spirit of the Lord rushes upon them. They prophesy. And then Saul says, I'll go down myself. Verse 23, and he went there to Naoth in Ramah, and the spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah, and he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and laid naked all that day and all that night. Thus is it, is it said. Thus it is said. Is Saul also among the prophets? Now, it's interesting. The first time this had happened to Saul, where he comes and sees the company of the prophets, and the spirit of the Lord rushes upon him, it seems to be like ushering in the beginning of his ministry. That the Lord has come upon him and. Nobody was expecting Saul to prophesy, but here he is prophesying. Is Saul also among the prophets? But it's, it's like the signal of God's blessing him and preparing him to be the king. And here, the indication in the text is almost the opposite. So it's a little hard with narrative to know exactly what the author is getting at sometimes. But, but it seems like that, that this is the opposite effect, that God's spirit rushing upon him and causing him to prophesy and strip off his clothes and lay on the ground naked all day and night. Like it's almost God's judgment on him. He's coming to kill an innocent man, and God just stops him in his tracks, sends a spirit down, he's laying there, can't do anything. And it, it really it has almost the exact opposite feel of when a similar thing happens to him earlier in the book. Chapter 20, again, it, it's a long chapter, but basically it catalogs David's attempt at first to convince Jonathan of David's peril, and Jonathan doesn't want to believe it. Jonathan loves David dearly, and he does not want to believe that his father is trying to kill David. And, and David says, no, really, he's trying to kill me. And, and so the rest of the chapter, what you read, uh, is their plan in verses 5 to 23 to figure out is Saul really trying to kill David and then their execution of that plan in verses 24 to 34 and when it turns out that yes Saul really does want David dead now he, he is extremely displeased with Jonathan for ever sticking up for David to the to the point where he throws a spear now at Jonathan and, and at the end of the chapter you read David and Jonathan's final exchange where they just fall on one another weeping because they do love one another deeply and they're going to be separated. The, their friendship, though it doesn't end, uh, they are not going to be able to be close anymore. 
So David's circumstances have turned drastically in, in the space of these chapters, going from on top of the world, everybody loves me, to on the run for his life, which again is where he's going to be for the rest of the book, is he's running for his life. And, and as we look at these chapters, seeing how things have gone horribly sideways for David, horribly wrong, affecting not just himself, but affecting his wife, affecting his very dearest friend. What can we learn from these chapters about how to face our own trials, how to face life when things aren't, when we aren't holding the giant's head in our hand, right? When, when instead we're, we feel like we're under pressure or running for our life or have been stabbed in the back by someone who we should be able to trust. What do you do? Three things this morning. The first thing you need is prudence. First thing you need is prudence. Uh, of the three, it's the least important, but it's still pretty important. Uh, in verses 18, or chapter 18, verse 11, and chapter 19, verse 10, when Saul throws the spear at David, David doesn't say, I think the Lord's going to protect me. David ducks, <laughs> right? Like he, he sees the thing coming, and he, he ducks. He gets out of the way. When Michael tells him, my dad wants to kill you, he climbs out the window and runs away. Sometimes, uh, I mean, just the, what's the colloquial saying? The discretion is the better part of valor. That, that's true. That's exactly what, what David is doing here. When he goes and he faces the Philistine, it's pretty clear cut. God's on my side, not on his side. With Saul, Saul is the Lord's anointed. And David knows I'm also the Lord's anointed. Like God has me going to be in that position. But how am I supposed to respond in this situation if he's trying to kill me? It's probably not to sling a stone at his head. His right response here is to just get out of the way. To, to pull himself out and trust that God is going to exact vengeance. Again, the rest of the book has him on the run. It's, it's not cowardice. I mean, look at chapter 17. This man is not a coward. But sometimes, maybe, maybe even most of the time, the way God preserves our lives is teaching us to take wise and prudent action. I was thinking about this this week. Uh, I can't remember who it was. I was listening to a talk that a, a missionary gave, and I think, I think he was a missionary in Egypt. And he was talking about a group of American students, or maybe they're just short-term missionaries. I, in my head, they're students. Um, and, and they came to Egypt, and it was illegal at that point to hand out Bibles and to give out any kind of gospel literature. And so these people come, and they start passing it out anyway, and they get arrested. And they send back in their newsletter, they go back and they tell their churches, man, we were persecuted, but look at what we were doing for the Lord. And this missionary says, no, they weren't persecuted. They were stupid because it was totally legal to sell all of this stuff. And so while these guys are passing it out and getting arrested, they're down the street selling it for next to nothing, you know, printing costs. And they can sell them like hotcakes. They sell them all day long because people want it, but they just found a way to creatively, prudently follow the rules and get the message out. Now, I, I think one place where we learn prudence, all over scripture we can learn prudence, but this is one of the biggest benefits of the Proverbs, right? Like that old, like there's 31 Proverbs, one for each day of the month, that's really not a bad idea. <laughs> like there are so 
There's so much just plain life wisdom in Scripture. God wants us to use our brains. He, he gives us one and use it. So like I said, that's probably the least important of these three points. But it's not small. Like, God gives you a brain. Use it. The second thing is faith. If you remember, the second thing we need to, to face life when it, things go wrong, we, we need to think clearly and we need to, to think carefully about our situations and act prudently. The second thing that we need is faith. Remember in chapter 17, David's confidence is not in his own prowess. It's not in his own ability to outthink the situation. His confidence is in God. Chapter 17, verse 37, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Chapter 17, verse 46, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Like, David's confidence is in God. And the Lord was with David, we see in chapter 18. And that's part of why Saul is so terrified of him. Chapter 18, verse 14, David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And in chapter 18, verse 28, but when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. And I think what's implied by that, the fact that, that God is with David, is that David is continuing to trust God. David, never, never in Scripture do you find, that I can think of at least, can you find where someone is said God was with them even though they were not trusting, even though they were refusing God, even though they were running away from him. Like I, I think when, when it says that, that God is, is with him, what's implied is that David has continued that same trust that we saw in chapter 17. And it's evidenced in chapter 19 by who he, whom he runs to. When he's running for his life, where does he go? He goes to Samuel. He goes to the prophet. He goes to the one through whom God has spoken to Israel. Chapter 19, verse 18, David fled and escaped. And he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. So, so David's, what do I do? The well, the what do I do of faith is go look at God's word. Go, go hear what God has to say about something. And that's what David does here. I wonder, do you trust God when things go poorly for you? Do you it's easy when we're like David in chapter 17 and, and everything's going our way. And yeah, we had trust in God and, and things turned out exactly the way we thought they would or thought they should. Like, that's when it's easy to trust God, right? Like, I just saw him work. But now, David is running for his life, and he continues to trust God. David, David is having to flee because the most powerful person he's aware of wants to kill him. And he continues to trust God. One of the worst places to look if you're, if you're trying to figure out, does God love me, is your own feelings about a situation. Because our feelings are so malleable. They, they swing all over the place. They shift back and forth. David probably feels terrified, scared, 
Like, what's going on? His mind has got to be a mess. I can't even imagine. But he just goes to where he knows he will find something solid, and that's the word of the Lord. I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. Speaking to, to when, when we are in situations that seem hard or, or seem difficult and we can't figure out what God's doing and we question if he loves us, question if he's good, Spurgeon says, God is too good to be unkind, and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. So you can continue to have faith, continue to trust God, even when things aren't going the way you want them to. That's what David does here, and it, it pays off for him in the long run. God is playing a longer game than we are. <laughs> His his timeline of history stretches out farther than where we see. The third thing that God providentially uses to, to help David in this situation, the thing that we need to get through hard times, is friends. This passage, or this, this section of scripture, is framed, the beginning of chapter 18, and then all of chapter 20, focus on, and then we have this punctuation in the middle in chapter 19, with this friendship of David and Jonathan. We're going to probably spend more time on that next week. I, I wanted to stop and think about friendship, what we learned from, about friendship from this story, but also just friendship in general from scripture, maybe a little more topical. But, but surely it is obvious as we, as we read these chapters that apart from friends, his dear friend Jonathan and his wife Michael, David is dead. In, in human terms, there is no way David escapes apart from friends. And it is no less true for us in, in the things we go through in life. We may not have the king or the governor or the sheriff out to get us, right? We, we might not be literally in danger of our life that way. But when we are going through hard things in life, your soul is just as in danger as David's was. And very often you will not survive if you do not have good and godly friends to warn you, to protect you, to speak up for you, to speak truth to you. We need friends. Proverbs 27 Verse 10 says, Do not forsake your friend and your father's friend. Do not go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. In Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 24, it says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. I... As I read the New Testament, I can't help thinking that this is part of the importance of the local church. It is that, that we can band together, and like chapter 18, verse 3, where Jonathan and David make a covenant together, we're not brought together by cutting open literal animals and walking through them. We're, we're brought together by a different blood, the blood of Christ that we just celebrated in remembrance this morning, right? That blood that Jesus spilled on the tree binds us together and it's thicker than water and it's thicker than human blood 
It, it is the most important bond we can have with anyone is sharing Christ with them. And, and part of what God is doing in the local church is helping us to form those earthly relationships that will help us to endure to the end until he comes. But again, what that takes for granted as its basis is having Jesus as your friend. So that's where I just want to finish this morning, is, is asking you if Jesus is your friend. Because you can make earthly friends. We can, we can make friends who have common interests and all sorts of things. But the thing with even the best of human friends, even a Jonathan, or I mean, Michael is great in this chapter, and then later on in the story, Michael is <laughs> not as great. Um, the, the thing with all human beings, even those with whom we share Christ, even those in the church, is at some point they let us down. You know, I, I've let down my friends a lot of times. I, as your pastor, I will probably at times let you down. I'm never going to try to, but there's times where that's just that's what's going to happen because I'm a sinful human being. But there is a friend who sticks, sticks closer than the brother in an ultimate sense. Jesus is called in all, all over in the Gospels, but I just read it yesterday in Matthew 9, a companion of tax collectors and sinners. And then Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, one of, one of the slanders against Jesus was that he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners, those who were despised and those who were seen as fallen. And if we will see ourselves as those who are fallen, those who are, who should be despised, and come to Christ that way, he's happy to be our friend. Jesus is happy to be your friend. John chapter 15. Jesus is speaking to his disciples here. 15 verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Do you know, I, I, I think, and, and this is right, like we oftentimes think of Jesus and we think of him as a human 2,000 years ago, or we think of him as God high and lifted up, and, and he, was, he walked on earth as a man 2,000 years ago, and he is God high and lifted up, seated at the right hand of the Father, coming one again with all power and all authority. He's going to set up an everlasting kingdom. Like, this is, this is who Jesus is. And that same Jesus wants to be your friend. Not just in the future, not just after you've been glorified, but right now, as you are, Jesus wants to be your friend. So that when you're walking through those difficult times in life, when you feel like that person stabbed me in the back, or that person doesn't care, or I don't know what I'm going to do in this situation, you can know Jesus right here is my friend. And he shows us that he's what kind of a friend he is in John chapter 15, verse 13, right before those verses we read. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. He proved it already. You can trust him now 
because he's already proved his love to the uttermost. Do you know him? Is he your friend? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what a friend we have in you. Would you help us to turn to you and put our confidence and our hope and, and rest all of our anxieties on you because you've already shown us how much you care for us. We ask in Jesus' name.